It probably goes without saying that I like this film. However, I'm going to admit something that may make you want to stop watching this rumination analysis. I like all the films. Now, I actually haven't seen the most recent one. Nobody wanted to go with me, and I don't like going to the theaters alone, so I haven't actually seen that one yet. But I have seen one, two, three, and 4, and I enjoyed all of them. I mean, sure, they had their flaws, but I still left the movies with an overall positive opinion, bought the original trilogy, and have watched them several times. So, again, make of that what you will. If that means you don't want to see hear the rest of this, then I understand. For those of you still here, I want to talk about Aladdin. Now, I liked Aladdin. In fact, I like Aladdin. Even to this day, I think it's one of the Disney films that has aged quite well and is still enjoyable even from an adult perspective. I, th I admittedly don't like the same things that I did when I was a kid about it, but there's certainly a degree of sophistication... Really, Kafka? There's a degree of sophistication to the storytelling, which I do find enjoyable. So, you might be like, why the hell am I bringing this up? Same writers. Uh, I wrote down the names Ted Elliott and Terry... Rosson? God, I can't even read my own handwriting. Both wrote Aladdin and Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, Curse of the Black Pearl, of course. Which I'm probably going to start referring to as Pirates or Pirates 1 from now on, because saying Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl... It takes too damn long. Even for someone like me who talks for a living, that just gets to be a bit much. Okay, So they wanted to do this film pretty much right after Aladdin. It was their next big idea. And I've actually seen some interviews from them. It was like, oh man, it's going to be great. And we're going to do this story and now nobody wants it. Okay, okay, that's cool. Uh, so we'll put it back, you know, put it on the back burner. We'll sit on it for a while, think about it. Quite a few years passed quite a few years passed, and then interest started rising again, and a few people were wanting to do something more of a, like a historical thing, or a pseudo-fantasy thing, and they started shipping the, uh, or shipping, that's the wrong word, uh, fishing the script around a bit more, and got some interest from Disney, and start, decided, well, why don't we attach this to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and kind of merge the two ideas. Now, what I find funny about all of this is that there's two facts that are really important to keep in mind when it comes to this film. Arguably three facts. Number one, Disney in general, and the upper executives of Disney in particular, most notably Eisner himself, really tried to pull the plug on this project multiple times. I could only find two instances that were recorded in my own studies and in behind-the-scenes stuff, but near as I can tell, the way they talk about it and the way people refer to the movie and all that it sounds like there were more than just the two attempts to try and shut the film down. You know, once in general, and then once because it was starting to go over budget. The other fact that you really need to keep in matter about this film, in mind about this film, is that everyone thought it would bomb. Reviewers thought it would bomb. Publishers thought it was bomb. Most of the people working on it thought it would bomb. You know, everyone involved is like, well, we did our best. Whatever. We put out this film, and it's a frickin' movie about a ride at Disneyland. I mean, who's gonna go see that? Now, that third fact I mentioned? This movie sold really, really well. It was one of those rare exceptions where a movie that is not... It is both critically successful and financially successful. Usually you see one or the other, you know? I, I usually like to refer to that as the Princess Bride effect, where something doesn't really see financial success, but then over time receives significant critical acclaim, right? 
thankfully, or not, depending on your perspective, pirates sold like crazy. To this day, it is the 71, the 71st best-selling movie of all time, which may not sound super impressive, until you sit back and think about the impressive company they have to meet to even get into the top 100. And that is adjusted for inflation, by the way. At least, I'm pretty sure it was. I, I should have double-checked that. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure it was adjusted for inflation, the list I was looking at. Because, you know, like, Gone with the Wind was towards the top of that list. Anyways. So, there was also uh, an odd style to the film. A huge amount of attention to detail was done throughout the whole film. I started writing down some of those details. I had to stop. You know, I don't want to sit here talking for three hours. Nobody wants that, right? But um, I had to stop after a while because there's just so many. This is another of those films that would better suit a, you know, a lore-run mentality. If I could actually have it up here on the backdrop. You know, if this was legal or allowed to do. And I'd be like, hey, look, this, and then this. And you see that over the background? It was freaking amazing. You know, that kind of a thing. I wish I could do that with this film, because there's a lot to soak in. This is the kind of film that, honestly, you kind of need to go through twice. In fact, uh, I very, very slowly made my way through this film, re-watching several scenes multiple times to try and soak it all in. And this is one of those rare things where I would pause it every time I had a note to take. Usually when I'm working on a, a, a television work or a movie work, I can take notes without worry that I'm going to miss anything. This, this was not so. The other thing was the tone of the film. Now, I have actually used Pirates of the Caribbean as an example of romanticization before. Uh, I, actually, this and Fallout are my two favorite examples to go to for that, because... I mean, actually living on that ship and actually being a part of that life would be horrible, right? But that's not really how they portray it as. But at the same time, they don't go full tilt with romanticization. Instead, it's more like a lot less bad than it would be, but still not portrayed as perfect. It's this weird in-between. And I was struggling to come up with a term for it. Turns out the creators have their own term for it. They call it historical fantasy to look as realistic as possible, because the the intent by the developers and, and creators of this film was to make it look believable. If you'll remember, this is something that came up over in Galaxy Quest as well, which I mentioned over there. It was really important that the effects and the presentation and the sets and the, and the outfits and all of that was as historically accurate as possible, because that then adds to the fantastical element. In the case of Galaxy Quest, you know, the aliens and whatnot, and in the case of pirates, the more magical fantasy elements thereof. And I agree, it adds to the aesthetic fantastically, this historical fantasy. I love it. Um, and huge, huge props to, like, the set designers and the background people. I, I, mentioned, I have a note here that just says Bioware. What I mean by that is, it may seem funny, but once upon a time, Bioware was actually very well known for putting out games that had wonderful depth and breadth to them. Characters in the background, good voice acting for side elements, and lots of dialogue options, and, and just a lot of things that help flesh out the world other than the main characters and their main, you know, their main quest stuff. I just realized I have the wrong image up. <laughs> Sorry. Give me one second. There we go. <laughs> Sorry, I've been recording DS9 stuff all day. Well, not all day, obviously, because I worked on this. Um, a week would be a more accurate statement. So... I love the depth that is added to this. One of the first, one of the earliest scenes is with Jack coming in to the dock, right? And there's all these people and there's all this activity going on in the background and loading the pig and trying to get the cargo and it all feels believable. 
all that attention to detail is the kind of thing that you're not really supposed to notice. You're not supposed to look at that and be like, man, that guy over there, five from the back and three from the right, is is looking at me kind of weird. I wonder what he's up to. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to take in the old, the whole picture, and your mind then substitutes that with busy harbor. Now, you, they could just say busy harbor, or they could just, you know, th and there's a lot of ways that fictional works, you know, books, movies, television, and games have tried to portray busy harbor without actually going to the depth, the money, the expense, the effort of trying to actually have a busy harbor. And it never comes across quite the same way as just doing it. And that was pretty much the mentality of the designers of this film. Let's just do it. We need to have a ship. Okay, let's hire a whole bunch of people to be on that ship to make it look like it's actually got a sailing crew. We need to have a dock. Okay, let's hire all these people. We need to have this town. Okay, let's hire all these people. Now, granted, a lot of these were actually the same extras, obviously, but you get my point. They actually bothered to put the people in the background, and it adds so much to the presentation value. I cannot gush enough about that on this film. So one of the so let's get to the film itself here, really quick. One of the interesting things is that every character's initial scene establishes them as a character and usually does so with a combination of dialogue and action. It's a great example of both showing and telling. The first thing we ever see of Elizabeth is, of course, the child, but she's still, you know, excited, but nevertheless part of high society and someone who doesn't quite fit in. When we first see Kira Knightley, I had to think about that for a second. When we first see Kira Knightley's Elizabeth Turner, or excuse me, wow, Elizabeth Swan, we see someone who clearly doesn't quite fit in with the high society that she goes to. I'm going to be using two terms throughout the course of this rumination, high and low, okay? I hope but throughout the course of this rumination you'll understand where I'm going with that, but I just wanted to make that clear. Capital H, capital L, okay? High, low. So, then we see Norrington. And, of course, he's very biased, and he's got this whole, you know, death to pirates thing going on, and he acts as though he behaves as a part of high, right? High society. But he is very apparently ruthless, right off the get-go, right get but also intelligent and very competent. First thing he does when he sees Will on the plank is he shouts, man overboard, get out there and deal with him. And this is a recurring thing in almost every single one of his scenes in this entire movie. I'm not going to go over every single one of them, but watch them. When something happens, he's on it just like that almost every time because he's very competent and he's very smart and he's very capable of adapting to the circumstances because Norrington basically is what Jack Sparrow would have become if Jack Sparrow tried to be a part of high society. <laughs> so we have Governor Swan. Now he's an interesting one. First of all, I am a big fan of Jonathan Price, and I think he adds some dimensions to a character who otherwise would have been much flatter. Because at first glance, you might think he comes across as snooty, upper, you know, British politician, right? Pretty much exactly what you think when you picture those. Except he has just a couple little extra layers on there. Obviously he cares about his daughter. But he's also willing to do and go above and beyond that in many circumstances, in almost every scene he's in, actually. And this is something that would actually become more a thing in future films. But nevertheless, even here you can tell this isn't just a politician. He's a politician who dot dot dot, right? And a few additional character flavors to them. And they established that in his very first scene. I want to take a quick aside, by the way. I meant to mention this earlier. Forgive me. 
I'm going to go out of my way to try and ignore the rest of the pirate series when ruminating on this film. Now that's actually kind of difficult for me to do, especially given how this ruminating usually involves theoretical analyses, uh, speculation, that kind of a thing, right? You know, why did this happen? Well, for evidence, we have to look at the rest of the mythos in order to understand that. You know, a lot of Jack Sparrow's past is fleshed out in future works, for example, like where he got the compass from or why he had the issues with the East India Trading Company, you know, all that fun stuff. But for the purposes of this, I'm going to do my best to take this in a vacuum. Partially because I think Pirates 1 uniquely fits in a vacuum, despite, in my opinion, leading nicely into Pirates 2. In other words, there, there are, in my opinion, two ways to look at this film. A part of the Pirates franchise, or a good film in its own right. Even if you never saw any of the other ones, it wouldn't take away from this film. And there's not a lot of films you can really say that about. I mean, for example, imagine if Fellowship of the Ring was the only Lord of the Rings movie they made. It, it, it wouldn't fit. It wouldn't work. There'd be too many pieces, too many elements missing. And, of course, it just kind of stops rather than ends. But this one... You see where I'm going with that? So, anyways. So, then we see Gibbs. Mr. Gibbs. Now, Mr. Gibbs, of course, comes across as a sailor... And I know that sounds like a duh, but I mean like the archetypal of, you know, the archetype of a sailor. You know, the kind of guy you picture when you think of sailor. And he's got the, you know, he's got the superstition thing going for him. He's got the experience going for him. But he also clearly doesn't really fit in with the rest of the high society people around him. He is our first look into low society. He's the first glimpse we have of that. And even in the first scene, all of this is laid out on display. Granted, his next scene has him literally lying in a pigsty. So that, that establishes it a little bit more. And that brings me to the next thing I want to talk about, about the movie as a whole. Pirates of the Caribbean is a movie that is strangely obvious for how subtle it is. There's a lot of things that you can read into and, and analyze and really pull into the depth and breadth of it. And then later on, they're just really, really, really obvious. Like just slamming you in the face with certain things. Or... They'll showcase, they'll, they'll showcase something, and it's nice and, and, and well presented, and then later they just say it flat out, you know. It's weird the way they do that. It, and it just kept weirding me out as I was going throughout the film. Anyways, I also want to give huge credit to the directing, because I, I already mentioned the set design. That's actually, I'm not even at that note yet. But I want to give special credence to the directing and the overall pacing of the script, because the script picture waves on an ocean. No, I'm serious. The tempo, even of the action scenes, pitches, and then dips, and then pitches, and then dips. And this pattern of this wave format never changes in the entire film. There's, the place I was most struck by this by was the final battle, or rather the second to final battle, at Isla de Muerte, with, you know, the, the British soldiers and the Poirots, and, you know, Elizabeth, and all the, you know, that, that big final battle, right? Because it's like, da 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 fighting, ja, da and then it kind of comes right back down, and we have a character moment between Jack and Will, and they talk, and they discuss, and then it goes back into action, and then we have a much quieter moment as Elizabeth is sneaking aboard the ship, and then it goes back into action, and, and so forth and so on. And I think it was paced very well, and I think that overall flow of the motion and the flow of the energy in this film works very well for me. Moving on. So, uh, I mentioned 
Elizabeth. I just want to stress once again that she again comes across as a fairly non-standard British woman. I mean, granted, she's out on this colony, uh, out in, in the Caribbean, right? So she's not exactly required to act like all the women back in London do. But I get the very strong impression that as she has been, shall we say, doted on by her father, that she's been encouraged to be her own person. I never see anything in the film that makes me think that he is trying to rein her in. And I think that's part of what makes him more likable. And it also helps to explain why she, at the age she's in, in the, in the time and history that she's in, is allowed to be as adventurous, as well-read, and generally not fitting in with high society as she is. Because she is allowed to. She has access to, thanks to her dad. Oh, that brings me to Will Turner when we first really see him with uh, Orlando Bloom. Wow, I'm sorry, I can't think of either of their names. When, when we first see him as Orlando Bloom and he, he shows up on screen, again, first thing we see with the way he interacts with the, the damn candlelight, which is played for jokes, but it makes a character point. This is someone who doesn't fit in with high society. He tries to. He wears the outfit. He looks the look. He tries to behave as he must, but in the way he interacts around the governor, the way he interacts when he's alone, and the way he reacts with Elizabeth all indicate this is someone who is effectively a part of low society, but doesn't actually fit in with low society, which is appropriate because Elizabeth is a part of high society who does not fit in with high society. So, then we have Jack. Again, first thing we see about him... Let's let's go over this, okay? Just just really quick. So first, we see him sailing this dinghy, <laughs> this this dinky little ship into port, and it's sinking. So he's like, okay, we're gonna make this work. He salutes the hanging pirates right off the bat. There, even though he does it almost sardonically, you could still see there's a degree of decency, or I suppose honor is the word to use there, even in that simple action. And then of course he comes in. And I was like, excuse me, you need to, it's, it's a shilling to pay up the dock. Oh, okay. Here's three shillings, and we'll forget the name. Wander off, steal the rest of the money. Thus, we have Jack pretty well established. He's not a horrible, you know, destitute, murdering and killing and destroying pirate. Excuse me, pirate. He instead comes across as more of a cunning, adaptable, thinks on his feet pirate, which again kind of parallels him to Norrington. Jack, of course, fits in perfectly with low society. So, I'm just going to run down a few of my points here. I, I'm amazed that this movie avoids most of the historical baggage that it otherwise would have. I guarantee you, if this film came out today in the current climate we have here in the States, people would be raising a stink about it. There would be articles and people would be bo trying to boycott it and all sorts of crap because... It does several things, doesn't call attention to it, but it does several things that are fairly anti-female and fairly anti-black because of the fact that that's how it was at the time. It does not treat black people as if they're inferior. It treats it as if characters at the time, etc., etc., etc. Same thing with women. It also helps to establish Elizabeth as such a different character from the other women. It, forgive me for skipping ahead of my notes, but later on when the pirates are attacking, the other women are like, ah, and flee Elizabeth 
tries to grab a sword off the wall to do something about it, right? Anyways, I'm just glad that we don't have to deal with that kind of baggage uh, in this film. And forgive me for even bringing it up. <sighs> now, there are some great character moments in this. And it's interesting that we see... So, I had to look up a couple of names. Uh, Murtog and Malo Mulroy? Murtog and Mulroy. Or is that Murtogs? God, I can't even read my own handwriting. See, I don't know their names. It's the name of the two sailors. They're actually recurring characters, and they will show up again in uh, upcoming films. But the, the, the almost Abbott and Costello comedy act they have going on was something I really enjoyed. But what I loved most about it is it's a great way to establish Jack as a character. There's two guards guarding the Interceptor. That's it. If you So there's another kind of term I'm going to use here. I've already mentioned high society and low society. There's two types of pirates that we see in this film, very distinctly delineated from each other. We've got pirates and poirates. That's how I'm going to try and distinguish them, okay? Now, a pirate would walk up to the two men and be like, Hello, Chabana, and then just stab, stab, then lean him against the wall and take the ship and leave. Boom! Done! And honestly, that might have been the, shall we say, correct choice to make in that case. Jack, however, is a poirate. He is someone who looks at that and he doesn't want to kill or murder or maim. In fact, Jack only kills one person in this film. Directly or indirectly. I know you could argue that last point, but I stand by my statement. So, he walks up and he starts talking it through. It's like, hey, I, I don't know, I mean... Why do you even have the Interceptor here when you've got the Dauntless over there, you know, and just starting to ship talk? And then he just wanders onto the Interceptor to try and take her, and they're like, no, no, you can't do that. And he's like, and, and oh, and tell us what you're doing, and no loys, and pirates, and, excuse me, Jack immediately says, okay, I'm here to commandeer a ship, head to Tortuga, get a crew, and go pillage my way to freedom. I said no loys. Wait, I think he was telling the truth. But if he was telling the truth, he wouldn't tell us. And thus we learn the value of truth. This is another one of those more subtle themes in the film. In many instances, characters will tell the truth in order to deceive people. Now, some people do this with a degree of subtlety or panache. Some characters do it really, really obviously. And usually the people who do it more obviously do it more villainously. Uh, Barbosa comes to mind immediately. I do want to point out something, though. So, he start, you know, they have their guns pointed at him. Picture the sequence of events. They have their guns pointed at him. He has admitted he's trying to capture the ship. The, then this camera cuts away, and we have some scenes with Norrington and Elizabeth, and she faints from the corset and falls off the cliff. Then we cut back to him, and he's still just chatting with them. They haven't attacked him. They haven't carted him off to prison. Because that is Jack's greatest asset, his charisma stat, for lack of a better term. And this helps to establish one of the things that helps make him such an infamous pirate. It's not the fact that he's really, really good in a fight, although he's pretty decent. It's not the fact that he has some supernatural power backing him, although at certain times he does. It's just the fact that he's really, really good at thinking and talking his way adaptively around the situation. Which brings me to my next point. So we've seen Jack on the docks. We've seen Jack try to take the Interceptor. What is the third character moment for Jack? The third time we see him do anything. Someone has fallen into the water and is sinking. Okay! And he goes in after her. And I hate to keep paralleling Jack to Norrington, but note that that was Norrington's first reaction, too. It was his officer who had to pull him back. And honestly, I thought Norrington was still just going to jump in anyways. 
<laughs> so, Jack gets them out, and this is the beginning of another of those subtle themes that runs throughout the course of the film. The lucky bad luck. Jack swims in there. Now, first of all, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. Let's, let's ignore that for the moment. So Jack swims in there, gets her out, opens the corset, gets her to breathe. I'm like, okay, there we go. And he has saved her life. And let's be honest, he has saved her life. It's very likely that by the time the troops had actually arrived down at the docks, that would have been it. She would have taken in too much water or been without oxygen for too long, one of the two. It's possible she would have lived, but you're gambling at that point. She was already in a bad state when he got to her. So he does this act, and they have he is approached by guns and swords and the order to shoot him. And he's just like, okay. And so in the, instead, Norrington, who recognizes a pirate when he sees one, says, ah, hey, and tricks him into seeing the East India Trading Company uh, brand. He's like, okay, now we'll go hang him. And then starts our next big action sequence as he tries to escape. See, the thing of this, though, is this is a series of events that will go very well for him. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, because I want to pause and rewind for a second. You remember when the coin hit the water, and then the shockwave went out? Even the normal people on the dock felt it. And the wind started shifting within moments of that happening, right? One of the things I like about the first film, admittedly I like this about the, all the films, but again, I'm trying to just look at the first film in a vacuum, is they explain the magic of it almost universally visually. The way they present it establishes it, and they don't bother to sit down and say, <clears throat> hang on, so as you can say, uh, under Article 47.5, magic when cast with these moments. You know, they never try to rules book the magic, but they do still try to explain it with a degree of self-consistency. Here we have something that's kind of vague, but nevertheless we can get the impression immediately. This is a magically inclined coin. It has come into contact with the sea. And upon coming into contact with the sea, that has sent out the shockwave so that the others can, can basically home in on it, right? And all of that makes sense. Now, if you were to try to sit down and rules lawyer this, you might say, well, maybe it has to get in... Is, is it water? I mean, surely it's come into contact with water before, right? Well, but water is different from the sea. And then you might say, well, how do you define the sea? And you could see how that might get bogged down trying to define that. Instead, just through visual presentation, we understand pretty much immediately and we're on board. So, <clears throat> uh, I'm sorry, looking down my notes here. Uh, it, so there's some good Chekhov's gunning going on. They mention right off the bat, you know, Norrington is examining his effects and says, you have a pistol with one shot, no additional powder or shot just the one shot which he does fire in this episode or excuse me in this in this movie and you have the compass that doesn't point north and norrington goes way out of his way to act condescending and negative towards jack now i find that kind of interesting to me if i were inclined to believe in depth in the characters i would say that the reason that norrington is so negative towards pirates or pirates is because he is trying so hard to establish himself as a member of high society and doesn't actually come from it. Now again, just looking at Pirates 1 in a vacuum, this strikes me as someone who was elevated to the purple, if you will, and wants as best as he can to maintain that, and as such, 
quite naturally thinks of himself better as of uh, thinks of himself better than anything in low society, which pirates would naturally fall into. So, action sequence, improvisational thinking, blah 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 blah, and then I want to mention something. Jack is obviously low society. It took a bit for me to really put a finger on his presentation because if they had done this wrong, if they had gotten a worse actor and had worse directing, Jack would have been a Mary Sue. He's really good at a lot of things. He talks his way out of a lot of situations he probably shouldn't be able to. And he generally just kind of wins his way through everything. However, they present that as just the nature of, again, that, that speed chess is what that really is. Rather than the great brilliant thinker who's planning 15 moves ahead, he's thinking about right now and the next move. And that's about it. You know, that's as far as he's gotten. And in addition to that, he comes across as very coarse and very... I don't have a good word. Low society. He comes across as a, as a, as a dumb, brutish idiot, except he's not dumb or brutish or an idiot. You know what I mean? Like, he comes across as silly at times or ridiculous. You look at this person, you think, how could this person ever possibly be a threat? Because he is very smart. But he is the, the epitome of that low society ideal. So he doesn't hold airs. He doesn't try to hold to some esteemed ideal or to walk just so or to present himself in an elegant fashion. No, he's like, come on, why isn't this working? You know. And I like that, and I think that really adds to his character. Moving on. So, Jack goes to the smith to get out. Manages to work his way out. Notice again we see the difference between a poirate and a pirate, because a pirate who is in Jack's shoes would walk into there, see the smith, kill him, you know, that way he won't wake up, or at the very least tie him up and gag him, and then as soon as they saw uh, Mr. Turner, kill him, or hold him hostage, or whatever. Jack does neither of these things, because it's just, he's just not that kind of a person. And I hate to keep emphasizing this, but Jack is not the only poirate in the film, especially not in the films overall. And the film does make a very clear distinction between the two categories of people, but I'll get more into that later. So then we have the sword fighting. Now, what I find... Okay, I mentioned earlier the subtlety and, and the obviousness. There's a couple of subtle things that indicate that Will is actually the brilliant blacksmith, and this guy who pretends to be the blacksmith is just, you know the guy taking the credit for it, because Will is of low birth, so the only way he can present himself to those of high birth is in order to present himself in a certain way as an apprentice, even though he is effectively already a master. Now, that all makes sense to me. I'm with all that. And they present that nicely and visually, but then he says it flat out. And it's like, you didn't, you, you don't need to exposit about this. We already got it. It's okay. We're, we're not stupid, I swear. Anyways, then there's the sword fighting. Now, there's several sword fighting scenes in this film, and they're very weird for me because they are simultaneously great and terrible. There's some long shots that a lot of the sword fighting scenes have that are obviously, you know, stunt doubles that are done very well and are very well choreographed, but are a little bit too short, and that leads me to the problem with them. There's editing everywhere. It's like, chop, 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 You know, it's, it's the multi-cut thing, which just drives me batty. And it takes me completely out of the action. There were several of the action scenes where it was just cut, 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 that I just found myself going, 
Come on. Being honest, that's probably one of my biggest complaints about the film. The way they present the action sequences from an editing perspective and a directing perspective is just too many cuts, too many edits. But I digress. It could have been worse. And, of course, there's still some good stuff there, so that's nice. So, what I, I hate to rehash this point, but Jack wins. He starts getting desperate. He's like, okay, this guy obviously can match me. So he cheats. And he's like, okay, get out of the way. No. Please get out of the way. You know, this shot is not meant for you. Keep in mind at this point, Jack has no particular means or intention to go after Barbosa. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what he's after. He's just holding on to that in the off chance that at some time, the opportune moment might come along and he might be able to go ahead and shoot Barbosa. I like that. It really helps to emphasize the, frankly, monomaniac personality that he has. Because Jack gets a little fixative throughout the course of the series. But moving on. So at 28 minutes and 40 seconds is when the pirates actually finally show up. And we see the pirates storm the storm the fort and storm the area. Norrington competent again. I'm just going to skip over several of the, the bits and pieces here. And I'll talk about something as we go through it. But during this whole action scene... They don't do much to establish the difference between the pirate members. But we already see that there are two in particular who are going to get more screen time and attention to be the faces of the pirate crew. And that would be Rigetti and Pintel. Hopefully I'm pronouncing their names right. They're also regulars in the series, at least up to the third film. And I like their portrayal because both actors manage to see, come across as perfectly menacing when they need to, jocular when they need to, and again, kind of an Abbott and Costello back-and-forth thing they've got going on. So I like that. They effectively become the viewpoint characters for the pirates. So then we see a few weird scenes. And I want to comment on this, because originally, the, the, the original cut of the film, or I should say the original script of the film, had a lot of references to the actual ride back at Disneyland. Now you might be like, well, but the movie does. No, you don't understand. <laughs> The original setup had way more references to the ride at Disneyland, like way too many, and they were actually asked to tone it back a bit. So a lot of scenes t were still left in, basically because there's a scene like this at the ride at Disneyland. So here you go, and that was pretty much it. Uh, I already mentioned the Elizabeth trying to grab the sword. Uh, I love the bit where, you know... Uh, Teague, I want to say, the, 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 the gentleman with the dreads and, you know, you, the great voice, you know nothing of hell. I love his voice when he says that. He reaches out and he grabs Jack, right? And you see the, ske the skeleton and Jack sees this and he says, so there is a curse. And I love that bit because you can see the gears just starting to turn in Jack's mind. Because, Again, adaptive thinking. This is the first time he found out there is, in fact, a curse in the coins. He's probably heard rumors or stories, but to see something factually in front of his face, and notice he doesn't freak out or be like, oh my god, or disbelieve it like some other characters would and do. He just sees it and goes, huh. Well, that's interesting. He processes that. Starts thinking ahead a little bit. Also, well, I'll get to that in a minute. And, of course, this is another example of that good bad luck thing going on for Jack because, you know, the cannon hits and lets all the other prisoners out, but not him. Although, again, this does work out in his favor. So then we see Barbosa, 
Let me go ahead and give huge props to Jeffrey Rush for somehow nailing this role in such a way that I, it's hard to even properly wrap my, my head around it. Originally, they wanted an uncomplicatedly evil villain. What they got was a charismatically evil villain. There's a reason why I use Hector Barbosa as a the archetypal example of a type 1 villain. This is actually, for those of you who have heard me talk about the villain types and the four villain types, he is a clear-cut example of a type 1 villain. He is definitively evil. You don't really feel for him. He's not, re But he's not really like this kind of slimy, screwed-up person. And he's not like horrifically bad or just monstrous. And he has charisma. That's actually really important. He has to be the kind of villain, or she, I guess, sorry, I'm, I'm saying he because Barboza's a guy, but you know, the type 1 villain has to be sufficiently charismatic that you want to see more of them. That despite the fact that they don't have the depth of a type 2, or the messed up nature of a type 3, or a monster like a type 4, a type 1 villain is someone who smoothly ha slides onto the stage and just has presence. And there's a lot of great scenes, like during the battle between the Interceptor and the Black Pearl, where he's just standing on the Black Pearl, like standing tall, really, as the, as the ship is, is, you know, mast falls over, and he's just, mm, that's a type 1 villain right there. But I digress. So Barbosa shows up, and he's interesting to me because he's one of several characters who kind of straddles the line between high society and low. I'll talk more about that later, but I love how he is more than capable of fitting in and seamlessly acting as a high, but still so clearly belongs in low. But he still comes across as someone with more sophistication and, for lack of a better term, civilization than Jack does. Quick, quick aside, this has always bugged me since I first saw this film. Why would they care if she drops the pendant into the water? I mean, granted, I understand, you know, tides and how it wouldn't just stay there. It would probably be moving very quickly under the water. But, I mean, they could jump in right after it. And it's in the sea. And we already know the sea helps lead them to it. So it's always bothered me that, that about that. Why, why is that a big thing? But I digress. Whatever. So they take her, we hear the pirate code brought up, of course, it's just guidelines, really, blah, 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 inside joke, etc. I don't have much to say about that. What I do have to say is that I like Norrington in the next scene, because he correctly deduces what's going on with Jack and, and the, the arrangement between Jack and the pirates, but does not correctly deduce that they might, he might know something about them. It's, I, and the reason I bring that up is this will be relevant later, actually. Because he is refusing to go to Jack for help because, well, Jack's a pirate. Or a poirate, rather. But you know what I mean. You know, he, he's scum. I'm not going to lower myself by going to him. That's ridiculous. Hell with that. I'm better than that. So, out of pride, he doesn't even try. Now, Mr. Turner, William... He doesn't have that pride issue. In fact, he has a bit of a, pr a problem in a different direction. He is way too willing to do whatever is necessary at the drop of a hat to do whatever is necessary for the love of his life. To be blunt, he is a typical Disney main character. Just to, to, to put that as bluntly as I can. The, now, it's, there are ways he's not a typical Disney character. I do want to add that. But in terms of his willingness to just do whatever without thinking... 
you know, without regard to social norms or culture norms or what's available or anything, just, no, we got to do this, is very Disney. <laughs> so he goes to Jack and bargains with him. And, of course, Jack changes his mind the moment he learns Will, Will's identity because now he has two pieces of the puzzle. He knows there's a curse, and he's got the son of Bill Turner right in front of him. So now he has some leverage, and that'll be a thing brought up several times. And I'll talk more about this later when it comes up. So they have the plan to commandeer. Now, I do have to say that the plan to commandeer the Interceptor is quite brilliant in its own right. But what amuses me about it is the only reason it works is because Norrington has that pride issue and drastically underestimates Jack. Now, granted, he has already captured Jack, but if you're actually thinking about it, that wasn't Jack's fault, was it? Jack did outplay him, uh, twice, actually. So he shouldn't be underestimating him at this point. But, of course, no, no, go, kill, let's go. Oh, what? And, of course, now the Interceptor has all its sailing and riggings and is generally ready to sail, which would be a very difficult thing for two people to accomplish, and they have the fast ship to head off with now. Oh, and he disabled the rudder line so the Dauntless can't actually just immediately sail right after them. So they'll get enough of a head start to get out of the range of the Long Nines, and they're good. Nice touch. So, there's a great character moment between Jack and... William Turner out on the ocean, and I wish I had anything to say about it, but I don't. It's just a great character moment. We see Jack as he is, and we see Turner as he is. We see Jack as the kind of person who is willing to do what is necessary, but within reason. He clearly holds himself back. Whereas Turner, well, he's willing to do whatever. So then they end up at, Tortu then they end up at Tortuga. Now, Tortuga is definitely the ride scene. It's like, okay, I mean, there's literally people enacting parts from the ride as they're doing the long panning shot in. And, you know, slap, blah, blah, blah. Gibbs shows up again, very superstitious again. I don't have actually, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have much to say about that scene. There's a lot of good detail in the background, but a lot of it is fairly apparent and obvious what's going on. As is made much more clear later... Jack at no point never intended to actually turn Will Turner over to Barbosa. Not necessarily because he's a good man. That hasn't been established yet. That's part of other movies. But within this movie, because it'd be stupid to do so. And he knows that. So, whether it's because he's a decent man, or because he's not an idiot, take your pick, right? I bring up the good man thing, though, because several people drop that line with regards to Bootstrap. Bill Turner, you know, Will's father about how he was a pirate and a good man. And, like, everyone says that. Pirate, good man, pirate, good man. The only people who don't say that are the actual pirates. Well, that's not true, but you get the point, right? Anyways. So then we have a, a wonderful scene. It's actually probably my favorite scene in the movie. It's the scene where Elizabeth is called to this fancy dining table, nice spread, very carefully laid out, the music's subdued, the lighting is subdued, and it's, well, it's high society again. And of course, she knows exactly how to act in that. It is he who has to point out there's no, there's no need to, to, to stand on ceremony, no call to impress. You must be hungry. So she just starts chowing down. So we see her capacity to be a low society, and his capacity to be high society. And then, 
Jeffrey Rush nails this, perfectly nails this. He comes across as someone who is literally living vicariously through someone else. Now, forgive me for getting real for a moment, but I've actually been starving in my life, as in, you know, medically, you know, dying of, of starvation, you know, going without food for very, very long periods of time. And this has happened to me in my past. It's been a long time. It's okay. You know, it's part of my past. We're past that now. But I bring that up because I know what it feels like to be in that situation, to have that horrible feeling of your body literally eating itself, and to see someone eating. It almost doesn't matter what they're eating. But a spread like this, and Jeffrey Rush so beautifully encapsulates that emotion of just, like, like it's literally taking his breath away. I mean, I know he doesn't breathe, but you know, it's taking his breath away just watching her consume, the, you know, the, the 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 lamb and and the wine and the apple. And he's just here, keep eating. God, I, I just, you know, brilliantly done. So then, of course, he lays it out for her. This is probably the first time at which they really pull the fantasy elements to the front of of the screen, so to speak. It's been kind of in the backdrop. You know, we saw the the magic pulse from the coin. We've saw we've seen how the ship itself kind of affects the surroundings. There's actually something later on which is really cool. Even in broad daylight, in a nice bright shiny day, the Black Pearl still has this cloud of doom and gloom following it. Nice touch there. So, you know, we've seen little bits like that. And, of course, we've seen the skeleton arm on, I forget his name, when he was trying to attack Jack in the cell. But here it's all laid out on the table. There's gold. It was cursed. Here's the conditions of the curse. Because that's how a curse works. Quick boiler point. I don't know, you know, when this was decided. But in virtually all works of fiction I analyze, a curse is defined by being basically a form of rules magic. If, then... And there's almost always an exit clause in order to prevent, then do this, you know, that kind of a thing. So, you take, you're cursed. You return, plus the blood, curse gone. But all the coins have to be returned, and all the blood has to be returned. That's the exit clause. Now, <laughs> I also have to give huge props to, again, Jeffrey Rush for portraying the way he says the lines, you know, too long I've been starving to death and haven't died. Again, I've actually been starving in my life. I know what that feels like. The idea of feeling like that for ten years and not being able to die, that's horrific. That is incredibly dark and horrible. I've actually heard many people comment, why would they ever want this curse to end? It's such an incredible advantage for them. It is his presentation of this, and uh, some of the other actors do a decent job as well, but he really nails establishing just how awful and miserable their experience and their lives really are. Yeah, they run, they do all these horrible things, and whether they have it come to, coming to them is, is going to be a matter of debate. But there is no real debating the fact that this is a horrible, horrible fate that they are suffering. So, they have the scene where, you know, dun, 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 and the skeletons and all the things, and I gotta be honest, that's probably my least favorite scene in the film. It just feels a little bit too choreographed, if that makes any sense. Like, someone just sat down and said, okay, and, and like, is, is doing a musical dance number in a play or something like that. And the music almost feels joking. Like, I can't take that scene seriously. It comes across as a comedy. And it shouldn't. 
with the incredibly brilliant, dark, you know, morose scene before and the horrific scene after. It's just weird. I don't know why they did it that way, but I digress. So, Zoe Zaldana's in this film. Do you know that? I think I knew that on some level, but it wasn't until this rumination, going back, I was like, wait a minute. Now, I actually like her as an actress. I've liked her in pretty much everything I've ever seen her in. And it was just, huh. And my first gut reaction was, why didn't they keep her for the rest of the films? She did a good job here as Anna Maria. I even remember her name, for God's sakes. She actually has a surprisingly large role in this. I say surprisingly. She's a C-list character. But she does have a lot of lines and a lot of screen presence at multiple points in the film, up to and including its ending. It's just weird that, that you know they never did anything else with her. But I digress. Um, again, I don't have a lot of lines for several of the next things. You know, the compass that doesn't point north, the ship sailing through the water, the, the crew that they get, bartering the ship for, for their servitude, all this stuff. It's all good stuff. Um, they try to explain Jack's backstory, which helps to explain his attitude and his mentality, especially within the confines of just the first film, why he's, you know, as Turner says, why he's all, you know, but, uh, in addition to the old thing, it also kind of helps to explain why he hasn't been completely open with everyone. Honest, very truly rarely has he lied up to this point in time. I think I, I was keeping track at one point and I lost count because I forgot to keep keeping track. But it's like three or so lies like in the entire film. But, uh, hang on, there's that one. I, I think it's three or four. But he doesn't lie that often is what I'm trying to say. But he doesn't just admit everything to everyone. But he did once. Once upon a time, his first mate came to him and said, Hey, we should all get the parts of the treasure. That includes the bearings. Oh, okay, well, here's the bearings. The mere fact that Jack was willing to go along with that says so much about his mentality and how, well, he's not a pirate. If I was to put this in slightly different terms, just to explain the difference between a pirate and a poirate, a pirate is a mugger. I'm going to attack you, probably kill you, and take your stuff. A poirate is a thief. I'm going to slip my hand in there and take your wallet and then move on without anybody knowing. Now, both of them are bad people, obviously, but you can see the rather large, the, 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 the gulf of difference between a pirate and a poirate under those circumstances. But we'll get more into that in the future. So he explains all that, you know, how did you get off, you know, the building the legend and the whole, I'm telling the story. You can tell there's this whole thing about the naval people and wanting to tell stories thing, which of course is a very naval thing in real life, so I'm, I'm with that and I like that. And he very accurately defines, you know, a wonderful quote, not all, not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. And, uh, he's right. And I wonder if Turner kind of acknowledged that he was right at that point in time. I don't think he did personally. See, a couple of things. First of all, he flat out says, you know, don't do anything stupid. This is the second time where we see a real good parallel between, or excuse me, third time, where we see a good parallel between Jack and Norrington. Because both of them pretty much told Will the exact same thing. No, 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 we need, to see, we need to sit, we need to think, we need to do this properly. And Will was like, to adventure! And then just charges off, you know? Quick point of note, I just like the fact that if they had been trying to kill her, they would have succeeded before Will did anything. Just point that out. Anyways. So Barbosa picks up on the plan. And here's where things get interesting. 
because Jack has been fairly honest with people and fairly decent and has shown himself to be far more decent of a person than he has to be. Not a good guy, but way better of a person than several of the other characters in this film, including Will Turner. No, think about it. Will Turner <laughs> knocks out Jack, who has gone out of his way to help him get here, got him a ship, got him a crew, got him to this destination, and then Turner knocks him out, leaves him for dead or worse with the pirates, and then just leaves. Got what I came for. Got my treasure. I'm out. Peace. And I love it because it, it doesn't even occur to him what he did until the scene where he's sitting with Elizabeth and he's helping her out and he sees the medallion and he realizes that was his medallion from his dad because his dad was a pirate and... I know that this is probably me reading into it, but I think that's the moment Will really realizes what he's been doing. Because he's been acting like a pirate. Actually, no. He's been acting like a pirate up until this moment. Willing to do whatever is necessary without regard in order to get what he wants. The end. Betrayal or backstabbing or hurting or maiming and again leaving for dead. All of that was completely acceptable to him. And I think that's the moment where that really clicks with him, because after this is when he starts to try and turn that around and try to be a little bit more positive of a person. And then, of course, in the ending, we'll get there when we get there. So, ah, yeah, then <laughs> I mentioned the reverse luck thing for Jack. This is when they bring up pretty flatly the fact that that whole reverse luck thing, again, being obvious when before they were being subtle, because he, he was horribly mutinied upon and left on a spit of land to die of starvation, hunger, or a bullet wound. And that worked out really, really well for him. He didn't have the curse, and he was able to go on with his life. <laughs> Again, that sort of lucky, unlucky thing. So then we have this great big battle. I literally have a note here that just says battle. There's so little for me to say about most of the action scenes. But I do like the fact that both Jack, or excuse me, Will... I was having that mistake in my, my notes, too. I kept writing Jack, and I'm like, no, no, Will, Will. I do like the fact that Will and Elizabeth both are, shall we say, inventive and willing to think outside the box, but clearly lack experience. What I like about the contest between the Interceptor and the Pearl is the Pearl crushes the Interceptor at every turn because Barbosa is just better than them. And I like that. He should be. He is an experienced, competent, capable captain who has been doing this for a bare minimum of ten years. There's a reason he keeps referring to the Pearl as his ship, rather than, you know, as opposed to Jack's assertion that it's his ship, because he has been captaining this ship for ten years pretty much nonstop, and he's been doing a damn good job of it. He has seen a lot, he's accomplished a lot, and he's just as smart as they are. And I like that. You know, they're just like, oh, God, we just... Gotta keep up and we can do that. No, ah, no, it's over. Now, I do have to stand on principle here, and I do have to bring up the club hauling. Now, club hauling is a real thing. It's just a real thing you really, really shouldn't do, because if you're at the point of doing that, you're probably at the point of risking shredding your own damn ship. And that's kind of the point, really. But they do the club hauling, and, I mean, we can argue the physics back and forth of what would have happened, all I'm going to say is that I know several people uh, who are sailors, or were sailors in real life, 
including a couple members of my own family, who see that scene as the worst scene in the entirety of the film series because, ah, no, ah, ah, ah. and I get that mentality. You know, I get that way about certain IT or networking stuff or you know certain ship stuff. So I totally get that. I just wanted to comment on it. And we can move on. Ah, so then Will throws away all of his advantages and just, just to get Elizabeth out. He doesn't really figure out a specific method of doing so. And I love... I'm going to skip forward a little bit. This is actually one of the few times Jack lies. He lies straight up to Barbosa's face. Very badly. You notice Jack's a bad liar? It's funny about that. But anyways, so Elizabeth has let off the plank. Yeah. Big, long, dramatic scene. Jack is let off the plank. Bargains for his gun back. That is such a Jack Sparrow thing. He doesn't bargain it back so he can shoot himself. He doesn't bargain it back for her. He bargains it back because that's his gun, and someday he's going to be able to shoot Barbosa with that gun. Someday. That's just the way his mind thinks, and I love that. It's a weird sort of optimism that's absolutely mired in pragmatism and reality, but never lets go of that kernel of optimism of saying, someday I'm going to be able to do this. Someday. It's going to take a while, but I'm going to get there. And I need to still have that gun if I'm going to accomplish that, right? And then he tosses the gun overboard, and Jack jumps in after it. First thing. Just races after it. So then we have what is simultaneously the best and worst scene in the film for me. It's the worst scene because it's a deleted scene, and it should have been in the damn film. It's the best scene because it's the best scene in the film. It's the sequence of events between when they get to the shore and then, you know, she, you know, she's like, is there any truth to it? So, rewinding a bit. They get to the shore and she's like, you despicable, horrible person, you were going to sell him out. And Jack says, no, no, I wasn't. That would be really stupid of me. I wasn't going to do that. And again, he flat out says, because if I did, he, he, I would lose my leverage over Barbosa and that would be the end of the contest and Barbosa would win. Oh. Yes, oh, but unfortunately, now that Will has bartered that away, I have nothing. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go find this this rum seller. Da, 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 da. And then she's like, wait, 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 wait. This is the big grand story. And she flat out lays out that she has read stories of Jack Sparrow. Probably grew up on stories of his exploits over the last ten years. And just, oh my god, all this stuff you've done. Tell me, you know, is this your big story that you laid out on a beach, get drinking rum? Now, I love that, because that is so Jack Sparrow. Forgive me for gushing, but, again, Jack Sparrow isn't a Mary Sue. He's not someone who's suave and perfect and just gets everything right all the time. He's the kind of person who will lay on a beach and get drunk and get out of it. Now, that's still a huge accomplishment, but he that's so boring, that's so normal, that's just so coarse and crude and... Low society. You get it? It's so him to be the kind of person who can turn a literal life-or-death horrific, dooming situation, the kind of thing that is literally worse than death, and just sort of make it work, you know? Now, then there's another part of the deleted scene where she flat out says, was any of it true? Were any of the stories true? And he... And it's a brilliant and it's subtle. He just shows her. Tattoo, branding, scar, more scars, bullet wounds, more scars. No, no truth at all. 
And we see in that moment that Jack has been through a lot of crap. And that helps to add to his character, in my opinion. That it's not just the the bungling idiot, but that this is someone who really has been through a lot and has managed to make it through all of it. I like that. But anyways, anyways. So he lays it all out while he's drunk. This is another one of those scenes where they take everything that's been implied up to this point in the movie, and he just says it flat out. You know, the, the, the pearl isn't just a, a sail and the mast. No, no, no. What the pearl really is is freedom. And that really emphasizes what a poirate is in this series as a whole. I hate to, you know, acknowledge future films, but there's a big emphasis on this point in the entire franchise, not counting the fifth film, which, again, I haven't seen yet. I, I don't know about that. About the difference between a pirate, who is a horrible, bloodthirsty murderer who just wants to kill and take, and a poirate, who is someone who just wants to be free. Now, they're not really good people, but they have their own ways, they have their own culture, and it's all about that freedom. That's always the big point they come back to. Resistance of the British Empire. Resistance against the East India Trading Company. Rebelling against, you know, the taxation or the mundanity or the bureaucracy or whatever, right? And the film, this film especially, the later films don't do this quite as much, but this film especially helps to emphasize why that would be a desired thing. Because you think, that's got to be horrible. Having to go, you know, on your own and barely making it to the next day. Why would anyone want that? Because we see just how, frankly, stuffy and oppressive and controlling and rigid that high society is. And thus we help to define low society. Not merely as lacking what high society has, but having what high society lacks. So, they escape. Um... <laughs> Jack, of course, completely plays Norrington, although it's worth noting that she is actually the one who plays Norrington in this case, once again showing how both Elizabeth and Turner kind of turn into poirates throughout the course of the film, as they're willing to do morally questionable things to get what they want. So in her case, she you know, pretty much convinces him, thanks to saying, yeah, I'll marry you. Sure, I'll marry you. Can we go rescue Will now? And he agrees to that. Hmm. So then they talk about Bootstrap's fate. Now, I want to I want to talk about that briefly. I haven't really talked that much about... And i got to look up their names. It's Rigetti and Pintil. That's it. I haven't talked about them too much. They're portrayed interestingly across the whole film. It's no wonder they go the direction they go in the next two films. But in this film, they come across as poirates who are stuck with pirates. That's the impression I get from them. Because they don't come across as bloodthirsty and vicious and just evil, just to put it bluntly, as most of the other pirates do. They are willing to do evil, but it is not their first inclination. You know, there's lots of scenes that emphasize this, but probably one of my favorite examples is when they're talking to Turner. They're going, it's, it's not a big deal, a quick, quick slice, little prick, no big worries, you know. And then the other one says, no, he's only half Turner, we spill it all. That scene is, is, again, a little bit too obvious, but it helps distinguish those two types of people right there. And then, of course, because they're stuck with the pirates, they're like, oh, okay, I guess we'll go along with that. It's not until later films that they stop being so horrible because they don't have to be anymore. You know, they're no longer required to be, but I digress. 
Ah, so then we have a wonderful scene. So Jack talks around everyone. He brings Norrington in. He gets Elizabeth out of the way to safety. He interrupts Barbosa and talks his way around and through Barbosa, despite everything. It's probably the most awesome Jack scene we had. And, of course, he can manage that because he does have information and he does know what he's talking about. He's not just bluffing. That's another thing. Very, very rarely does Jack bluff. He's actually got something real, some real leverage or some real information that he can actually use. And people know that. It's his reputation. So they know when he says, Your funeral, mate. And just Barbosa's face as he's just like, Ugh, like, it's like, oh, god damn it, I know this is stupid, but fine, fine, why? Why do I not want to do this? You know, it's, it's just such a great scene. And um, so then he starts talking his way around Bar uh, Barbosa and lies to him about several elements. In fact, lies to uh, Turner as well as the two coordinate. <laughs> but... One of the things I find best about this is this overall plan of Jack's would have gone off much better if Norrington had believed him. And there's this great little side bit where they're like, why aren't we back on the ships? And Norrington says, because it was him who said it. That pride again. You remember that? Remember I brought that up before? That pride forces him to not accept Jack's plan because it was Jack's plan. doesn't matter that it was a good plan. And granted, Jack's plan didn't take into account the pirates not coming out on the boats. However, if they had been back on the boats, they would have been better prepped for the oncoming assault on the boats. They would have been ready for that. And a lot less people would have died, and it would have been a much quicker victory overall, or at least a better holding the line, since they were fighting immortal people until, you know, the final coin was put in. Nevertheless, I love how they put that, and then, of course, it cuts back to, I forget their names, the two sailors, the Abbott and Costello sailors, and they say, you think he was telling the truth? And the other one just kind of goes, huh. Like, he doesn't say it, he just looks it like, huh. <laughs> oh, crap, I think he was telling the truth. I love that little tidbit, I really do. So then we have a battle! Keep the tempo going, I already talked about this, you know, the up and down, the wave thing. They keep going through the battle. Uh, Jack, of course, takes a coin... And this really helps to emphasize Jack's mindset. I know we've talked about it many times. But Jack is the kind of person who will willingly curse himself with a fate worse than death to gain a temporary advantage. This is where that whole opportune moment thing really comes in. I know they say it a lot in the, in the entire movie, but the best moment of using the opportune moment mindset or concept is that. I take this curse on me willingly, just in case, and then I start fighting Barbosa. And it's okay, you know, I mean, I remember when I was first watching this in the theater, I believe. I'm actually not sure if I saw this one in the theater, to be completely honest with you. I'm pretty sure I did, because I know where I was living at the time, so. I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just remembered who I was there with. And, you know, Jack gets stabbed. I remember physically flinching when that happened. Like, oh, no! Because, you know, I wasn't thinking franchise. I wasn't thinking anything. It was entirely possible Jack was about to die. And then he stumbles back into the moonlight, and it's like... Oh, right, right, right. And that's my fault for forgetting that he had the coin. I, I, that's, I'm an idiot. I'll, I'll accept that. But it still caught me, I'll admit that. So, he's got the coin. And he keeps the coin. And he just holds onto it. And he's literally just distracting Barbosa. That's the great part. He's not fighting Barbosa. 
He's probably getting out some venting on him. Just, oh, you, you mutinied and put me through all this crap and you took my boat. God damn it. But then, of course, you know, when it, when it reaches the point where the opportune moment arrives, no hesitation. Grab, slice, toss. Let's go. And Barbosa, to his credit, doesn't hesitate either. But then Jack shoots him. That interrupts the flow completely, and Barbosa looks back, oh, come on, you finally waste your shot. But he didn't waste it. I know some people who didn't like Barbosa's death scene, but I loved it. Um, I, I, I cannot possibly imagine what it's like to go ten years without feeling, and to just have this moment, I feel, and to have all that warmth and life flooding into you, and then almost immediately taken away. And then he just falls over. Apple, you know. Great scene, great scene. The one person Jack kills. I don't actually need my notes for the rest of this because, whoa, because I dropped my pen. Because the ending is all we got left. And let me go ahead and say that for as much as I love this movie, I can't stand the ending. I really can't. It's so pat. It's like, okay... We've got this great dramatic ending. The, the, the villain has been killed. And obviously we've got to have some happy endings. But they, it's like they didn't know how to do the happy ending. It, it, it's, it's, it's so forced. Like the crew leaves. But then the crew comes back. What? And then Will Turner's like, I must save Jack. You know, I must prove that I'm a pirate rather than a pirate. And I must admit that I don't belong in high society. I belong in low society. And Elizabeth, of course, has to say, I belong in low society with Will and blah, 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 blah. You know, okay, whatever. I get the beats they were going for, but it feels like they didn't know how to present any of it. Like, they were just running out of time. It's like, okay, quick, go, go, go. So the crew leaves Ile de Muerte with the Black Pearl and then comes back later, yeah, okay, and gives the ship to him. What? <laughs> Why didn't you just stay there? Even Jack held them no ill will. You know, they did right by them. Can't ask more than that. Yeah, shrug. Whatever, right? And then, you know, Will is like, I gotta save Jack. Chung, okay. No planning, by the way. If I could be so bold, it felt like Will was trying to pull off what Jack does, but he has no idea what he's doing. Because Jack does that whole, you know, improvisation, let's make it up as we go, and he's very, very smart and very capable of being like, this, 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 as he goes. Turner's like, okay, I'm going to prevent him from dying. Throw the sword. You know, Chekhov's gun. Chekhov's sword? Throw the sword. Ah, oh, okay, he's saved. Now, uh, now what? Um, okay, come here, Jack. Okay, uh, now what? I didn't think this far ahead either. Um, and if not for Elizabeth coming in, he would have just been screwed, and that would have been the end of it. And then Jack gives this long, meandering, frankly unfunny, you know, diatribe to everyone. And then he jumps off. And then Commodore Norrington's like, eh, we'll give him a little bit of a head start. What? Where did that come from? It felt so pat, and I hate it. But I do love that last line, bring me that horizon. Very fun film to rewatch, very enjoyable. Thank you for the opportunity to ruminate on this classic. And I will be seeing you guys next time.